0: Charles Spurgeon said this about John chapter 3. If we were asked to read to a dying man who did not know the gospel, we should probably select this chapter, chapter 3, as the most suitable one for such an occasion. And what is good for dying men is good for us all, for that is what we are. And how soon we may be actually at the gates of death, none of us can tell. John 3 is indeed an amazing chapter, not just in the Gospel of John, but in the whole Bible. It's full of just riches upon riches of important truth, life-changing truth, and it centers around this encounter between a very unlikely person to come to Jesus, another rich and religious person, Nicodemus. Nicodemus and Jesus. The whole chapter is just full of their conversation, layer upon layer of treasure and riches. And because of that, we're going to take two weeks just to uncover and unpack uh, what is in this encounter. It's just way too much to try to do in one service. So, two parts of this one encounter in John 3. And today we're going to look at John 3, verses 1 through 9 in particular. John 3, 1 through 9. I just want to encourage you to go ahead and find your way to that passage in your copy of God's Word. John 3, 1 through 9. And God's Word says, picking up in verse 1, There was a man from the Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. There's an ancient Jewish text called the Talmud, and it functioned as a running commentary on Jewish history and law and customs and culture. And Nicodemus was actually mentioned in that document as being one of the richest men in Jerusalem of that time and in that day. And we know from this opening verse that he was a Pharisee, which means he was an expert of the law and a highly respected teacher of it. And where it mentions he was a ruler of the Jews, that meant that he was part of the Sanhedrin and served as a high court judge. Think supreme court justice in our context. I mention these details because I want you to be aware of that and and keep that in mind as we go forward because Knowing that, knowing his background, that's going to show us how bold and significant Jesus' statements really were to Nicodemus. How how absolutely astounding they would have been to him, considering that he was a person of the pedigree that he is, that he was. His credentials, his experience. Keep that in mind as we go forward. Verse 2 says, This man came to him, to Jesus, at night and said, Rabbi, which is definitely a term of honor and respect and recognizing authority, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with them. So this is a pretty good way of Coming to Jesus, right? This is a pretty good thing that Nicodemus is doing, and what he's saying is right. I mean, he being a rabbi himself, a Pharisee himself, wealthy, uh, lots of years on Jesus. I mean, Jesus—remember—he was still a young man, humanly speaking—and Nicodemus was definitely much older than him, and yet he addressed Jesus as rabbi. I mean, that right there was pretty striking. He didn't didn't have to do that; he chose to do that. And he says, we know, and who's he talking about? It's hard to to really tell, but it's likely that he was referring to a group within the Sanhedrin, a group of fellow Pharisees that maybe weren't ready to accept him as the Messiah, but weren't ready to dismiss him entirely either, like others were already doing. They saw something in him they couldn't deny, something supernatural could be that he was just saying it's commonly known. It's commonly talked about, that, that you're not just some ordinary radical from the desert coming in to start this movement. There's something more going on here. Whatever he meant by that, completely we're not sure, but we do know he was admitting and acknowledging that there was a work of God going on here. So, I mean, this was very complimentary. Very, very full of honor and respect and a good way of, of starting this conversation and this encounter. But look at what Jesus does. It's, he just <laughs> goes straight to the point. He doesn't thank Nicodemus for those pleasantries. He doesn't give pleasantries himself in kind. He just goes straight to the heart of the matter, which is the heart. Verse 3, Jesus replied, truly. I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember, he's talking to an insider. If there ever was an insider, Nicodemus was it. This encounter was right before an encounter that we've already talked about together in this series, the woman at the well. That came after this. And with the woman at the well, an outsider someone rejected by society and culture, Jesus started off a lot more tenderly than he did with Nicodemus. He was very gentle in how he started his encounter with her. He was very careful in his wording. With Nicodemus, an insider, he goes straight to the point, cuts through all the obligatory pleasantries and just hits the nail right on the head. I tell you, unless someone is born again, really saying unless you are born again, he, you, cannot see the kingdom of God. And that statement had to just stop Nicodemus in his tracks. I mean, it had to have been so astonishing and even offensive to a man like Nicodemus that it probably took him a minute or two to recover just from the shock of it before he asked for clarification in his response. Because what Jesus was, was really saying to Nicodemus is, there's no difference between you as a Pharisee and a ruler and the, the beggar or the prostitute on the street. Everybody has the same need. Rebirth. There's no superiority before God. That's what he's saying. The kingdom of God is something that, that causes everyone to be on level ground before it. So you, Nicodemus, are just as much in need of divine intervention in your life and a miracle of rebirth as so-and-so. Fill in the blank. Everyone that you're used to looking down on and judging and condemning, you're in the same spot they're in. Even though you are a ruling member of the Sanhedrin and wealthy and a Pharisee, it just doesn't matter. So, I mean, he gives all these, these nice pleasantries. Oh, you're so we know you're so good. We know that you're from God, Rabbi. And it's like Jesus is like, yeah, yeah okay, Nicodemus, uh, here's the thing. You've got to be born again if you want to see the kingdom. And I mean, just, just taking back, I mean, think about how Nicodemus would have been. The look on his face, the jaw dropping. And finally, he recovers, and he says this in response, verse 4. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him, Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And that didn't throw Jesus. He just kept right on going. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's been a lot of thinking and speculation about what that meant, that phrase, what he meant by born of water and the Spirit. There's, There's different opinions that have been offered throughout the years. The one, though, that has the most probability, carries the most weight for what Jesus was saying, considering how he usually did, which was to refer back to Scripture as already revealed and use Scripture to... To further explain and enhance what he was saying, and also considering who he was talking to, an expert of the scripture, an expert of the law, someone who knew God's word and probably knew exactly what he was referring to. Most likely, and this is what I want to suggest to you, it's what I believe Jesus was referring to, most likely he was talking about what Ezekiel said. In in Ezekiel thirty six, verses twenty-five through twenty-seven. God, through His prophet Ezekiel, said this to Israel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. I just think that makes the most sense and carries the most weight as the likeliness of what Jesus was really referring to by saying. Unless someone's born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. His whole, his whole point is, you can't do this on your own, Nicodemus. This has to come from outside of you. And what I'm talking about is what was promised. It was what was prophesied. The prophet Ezekiel, he said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God speaking through him promised and prophesied about a coming time when God himself would do what was necessary. God Himself would bring about what we can't bring about to bring us into new life, to bring us into the kingdom, to bring us into relationship with Him. And by Jesus referring to that, there with this very knowledgeable, respected teacher, expert of the law and all things religious, underneath the words themselves, Jesus was really saying, before you standing before you, talking to you right now at night in this secret place is the fulfillment of that. That's really what Jesus was getting at. That's what He was pointing to and implying, that what was promised and what you need, I'm here to give you. I'm here to provide. I'm the fulfillment. He goes on with this concept. Verse 6, Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. And whatever is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So just like God's message to Israel through Ezekiel, Jesus here was focusing on humanity's inability to be naturally pure, naturally holy, no matter how hard we may try or how sincere we may be because of Adam and Eve's fall, people aren't basically good. Let's get that through our heads. Let's make sure we're all understanding that. People aren't basically good. All are fallen. All are completely corrupt and broken. Scripture says there's no one that does good naturally in themselves. No one seeks after God. No one is, is born naturally, humanly, looking to God, seeking a relationship with Him, wanting to be holy, wanting to be righteous, having an ability in themselves to be righteous or to be holy. No, everyone is born helpless and in themselves hopeless. Everyone is born broken, fallen, and a sinful mess. And that was Jesus' point. Without the new birth of the Spirit, without the intervention and supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us, our fallen, sinful flesh corrupts and pollutes everything. Everything. And you know this. We see this in our lives and the lives around us, in our world, in our our culture, in our society. This isn't something that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. We get that that our flesh, our humanity, our sinful nature destroys and corrupts and messes up and tarnishes everything, even good intentions. I mean, we may want to do good in some sliver of our being, but, but even our, our goodness somehow gets tainted and affected by our sinfulness. You know what I'm talking about, right? Over and over and over again we see it on display. And that was what Jesus was pointing out and making sure that He focused on and Nicodemus was focusing on the reality of who and what we are. But in contrast, a Spirit-born, Spirit-led person, even while still living in this flesh, in this skin of sin, even while living in our humanity, a Spirit-born, Spirit-led person can can please God, can live their life in holiness before God. But it's not going to happen apart from the work of the Spirit. And that's what Jesus was making sure Nicodemus heard clearly and understood. And friends, that's what he wants us to hear clearly and understand as well. It hasn't changed. Nothing's changed. It's the same predicament that we're in, and it's the same need we have. In verse 7, Jesus continues and he says, Do not be amazed. Do not be amazed. Do not marvel. Don't be astonished. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. But Nicodemus was astonished and amazed by this statement. Because he, like most of the Jews of his time, especially the Pharisees, which he was one of, believed that they already had already possessed the kind of spiritual life and complete holiness that Jesus was talking about they thought that it was automatic because of their ancestry you know father Abraham had many sons and I'm one of them so I must be good with God because hey I'm a descendant of Abraham and all through Jesus's encounter with the Pharisees they'd bring that up they'd bring it up again and again well, we don't need forgiveness. We don't need to repent. We're children of Abraham. And Jesus loved hearing that because that gave him a lot to work with. And so he was able to pounce right on that and say, guys, it's precisely because you are children of Abraham that you need salvation, that you need rescue. Exactly. But to them it was automatic because of that special sacred ancestry. And for the Pharisees, it was doubly automatic because of their strict cult-like obsession and really worship of following the law. So that's, remember, that's who Nicodemus was, that he's a product of that. He's a product of that philosophy and that understanding and having that perspective. I'm good. I'm all right. What, what are you talking about being reborn and needing to be reborn? I mean, I'm, I'm of the the best stock of Israel. I mean, <laughs> come on. I'm Nicodemus. Pharisee. High court judge. This is really strange to hear. No one's ever told me this before. I, I've never been told I have anything close to a need like this. What are you, what are you talking about? How many of you are um, to the point of obsession with watching HGTV and all those remodeling shows. At least somebody admitted it, one honest person. Okay, yeah, get, get a little more brave, all right. Yeah, uh, HGTV, I mean, I, I despise it uh, personally uh, because all that happens is, uh, you know, I, I start looking at all that th- these other people are doing and, and then I, I start to feel really horrible. Um, And so, just forget HGTV, but my wife likes some of those shows uh, that are on there. And, I mean, for a long time now, there's been HGTV craze. It just seems like it's everywhere, and Joanna Gaines and all her stuff. I mean, she's probably not on there anymore, but, you know, all these little life hacks and house hacks that you can do, and and these these ways of remodeling on a budget. and, And, I mean, it's just all the rage, and has been for quite a while. And that's how a lot of people view their own life. Kind of like one of those remodeling shows on HGTV. Like, hey, you know, for the most part, we're okay. We're, we're good. Uh, might need a little adjustment here, a little adjustment there. This, this light change would be okay over here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of envisioning a, a, a just a sharper look, but for the most part, I think we're good. We're, we're not talking about a, a, just a major gut you know, of the house. We're just talking about changing up minor things, light remodeling, light repairing. And at the most, Nicodemus might have been able to accept that, okay, I might need some slight repair, some slight renovation, in my life, but nothing, nothing so drastic like you're talking about, Jesus. A total rebirth. I mean, I, I don't think I need that. Polishing up here, polishing up there, but I'm pretty much good to go. I mean, especially considering people in general. I mean, have you seen how most of Israel lives? I mean, whoa, that, that's really some, some, some examples of rebirth need right there. So at the most, I think, Nicodemus was able to accept that he, he needed something slight, perhaps, but, but nothing so radical or drastic as Jesus was talking about. And if we're honest, that kind of mindset or perspective is easy for us to operate with as well. And Satan would love nothing more than to keep us operating in that mindset. Do you know that, you know that Satan loves religious people? loves religious people. Because, as Nicodemus is an example of and so many others, like Simon the Pharisee that we just talked about, very religious, very rich, the rich young ruler, rich and religious, he loves that because we are able to convince ourselves by being religious that we're good. That, that we're good to go. That we don't really need radical rescue because after all, we're religious. You see, religion has this very nasty ability, this nasty tendency to keep us from the very one that we need for our rescue, because it convinces us we're okay. And religion also employs and uses and draws from our own morality, our sense of morality. And so what it does is it kind of traps us without even realizing we're trapped. It's a very subtle thing. So I'm I'm talking about just depending on religion, just looking to religion for your status and standing before God. It's just not going to work, and it's going to actually do the opposite of what you think it's doing. It's going to keep you from God and take you farther from God rather than bringing you closer to Him. It's a mirage. And that's where Nicodemus was. And what Jesus was so desperately trying to get him to do and so desiring was for Nicodemus' eyes to truly be open, for the blinders to come off, and for him to realize... Pharisee though I might be, I need what Jesus is providing. And what was true for Nicodemus, it's true for all of us. I mean, every single one of us. You see, we don't need minor renovation, we need total transformation. And so often, so many times, especially in this culture, Appalachian culture, conservative, traditional culture, the Bible Belt, I mean, we're like the the buckle of the Bible Belt. So many times, we just don't believe that's true. So many times, we as people believe, ah, minor innovation, little motivational talk, inspirational truth, and I'm good to go. I mean, after all, I'm not like, (laughs) we don't need minor renovation. We don't need polishing up. We don't need reaffirmation of just how good we really are. No, we need total, radical, complete transformation. We do need to be, you know, we need our house to be gutted and just to to be completely remade. That's what we need. And that's exactly why Jesus came. It's why He came for Nicodemus. It's why He came for you. It's why He came for me. Jesus didn't come to make us better. He came to make us new. And there's a big difference. Big difference. You know the difference between taking something old and making it better. You know, there's also, in addition to the remodeling and slight renovation craze, there's also this kind of push for restoration work, you know, like taking an old chair and restoring it, taking an old dresser and restoring it. And a lot of people love to do it and they're really good at it. But there's still a difference between restoring a very old thing and going out and getting something entirely new. There's a difference, right? We know that. And so Jesus didn't come to just to make us a better version of the we or the me or the you that we already are. He came to make us completely, entirely, utterly, drastically new. And that's what we need. Second Corinthians 5:17 says, "If anyone is in Christ, he's a better person. Nope. He is a new creation. The old has gone. The new is come. That's what Jesus came to bring us, and he's the only one that was able to. He's the only one that could. He's the only one that can make us new. And that was the ultimate point that he was making in his talk with Nicodemus in his encounter with him. That was the ultimate point. That's why he went straight to that point. He didn't mince words. He didn't spend time with the empty pleasantries. He just went right to the heart of the issue, which was Nicodemus's heart. So Nicodemus, I'm not going to waste any time. I'm going to go right to your heart because it's your heart that needs remade. It's your heart that needs rescued. It's your heart that needs reborn. You need to have your heart beating with the same heartbeat that I have, that that is the heart of God. And you're not going to be able to do that yourself. Remember Ezekiel's prophecy, Nicodemus? Remember what Ezekiel was talking about? A new heart, heart surgery that, that God Himself would be the surgeon for? That that heart that would be able to finally seek Him, that would finally be able to actually do what He wants you to do, doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from your mother. It doesn't come from Father Abraham. It comes from what I am here to do and what I alone can do. That's the ultimate point that He was making. And we'll see more of that uh, next week. We'll see more of that ultimate point, that, that main point, really, as Jesus unpacks that even further next week. But let's finish up at this portion of the passage for where we are this week. Let's look back at verse 8. Still completely connected to what Jesus has already been saying about the new birth and, and uh, that which is you know flesh produces flesh, and that which is from the Spirit produces the spiritual life can't come from you, it's got to come from outside of you. And he says this in further explanation, verse 8, the wind blows where it pleases. And you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is, in other words, that's exactly how this works, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jesus's point was that while we observe the obvious effects of the wind, we can't fully comprehend it, how it works. We can't control the wind, not fully. I mean, we might try, and we, we are trying in our day and age for sure, certainly more so than they ever would have. But we still we can't control the wind, and we're never going to be able to. And we can't fully comprehend all of its properties either. And Jesus's point, and it's just as applicable to us, was that that's just how it is with the sovereign and mysterious work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. You know, the the Holy Spirit was just as active in creation as the Father was and as the Son. We know that Jesus was the actual creative agent through which the Father created the world. We know that from John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. We know that. But we also know from the Genesis account that the Holy Spirit was just as active. The whole Trinity was active in creation. The Father willed and decreed the creation. Jesus did the creating itself. And then the Holy Spirit, we know, was somehow mysteriously stabilizing it all. He was applying that divine creative work that God willed and that Jesus carried out, He was applying it and stabilizing it on the earth itself. And friends, here's the thing that we often forget. The Holy Spirit, just like at creation, is equally at work and active in salvation, just as much as the Father and the Son. It's the Trinity working together in our salvation just like He did with creation of of all that we see and know. And so, just like we can't fully understand what the Holy Spirit did at creation, but we we know He did and we, we accept that He did, it's the same thing in salvation. We can't fully comprehend the way He works, but we can't ignore the miraculous life changing effects of his work amen i mean think about your life think about the difference that that you know didn't come from you that is in your life after you gave your life to christ think about what you were and what you are and when you think about that and you see what should be an obvious difference If there's not, then you need to go back to the beginning. But when you see that, you know, I I didn't do that. There's no way I could do that. It came from God. So we can't fully comprehend the way He works. It's beyond us. He's the sovereign God of all the universe. And He works in mysterious ways, but we also, we can't ignore, and we do recognize the miraculous, life-changing, supernatural effects of His work and we also know as i just said i mean we can't produce his supernatural life giving power by our effort or ability we will fail every single time and and that unfortunately is why so many people are just so empty when they feel like they shouldn't be because they're looking for religion or they're looking for their own ability their own intelligence their own goodness to do what only god can do we are totally at His mercy and dependent on His grace. Just like we're out in the middle of a huge windstorm, think of the derecho that came a few years back. You know, To this day, uh, our girls believe that as we were coming back from vacation, when the derecho hit, you guys remember the derecho, right? You remember exactly where you were when all that went down, the land hurricane that it was. So we were coming back from vacation when it hit, and to this day, they swear that they looked out their window and saw a man holding on to a rake being lifted up in the air. I mean, you ask them, they'll they'll tell you, oh yeah, we saw it for sure. They didn't see it. Not at all. They may have convinced themselves they saw it, but they didn't see it. Now, it was windy enough to where, goodness, I, I felt like that could have happened to me that day. I mean, I went out, and it was, it was pretty intense. And you, you know what it is to be out in the elements and at the mercy of, of the elements. You know what it is to be caught in a huge wind gust or a windstorm. There's really not much you can do when you're just out there in the open. And that's really how it is with God's work of salvation in us. We're, we can't do anything to bring it about. We can't do anything to cause Him to do a work in our lives. We are totally at the mercy of God. And we are totally dependent on His grace. If the Spirit of God doesn't work in our lives, doesn't awaken us to our need for our salvation, and doesn't give us the faith we need to accept Jesus' work on our behalf, then friends, we will never accept it. We'll never have it. We can't do it on our own. Remember, no one seeks after God. There is none righteous. Paul says in Ephesians that we were spiritually dead corpses before God supernaturally reanimated us. So we're totally at His mercy, totally dependent on His grace, and totally in need of His work. The only thing we contribute is our need for what He does. Our need for the salvation that He provides. And that's what Jesus was trying to express to Nicodemus. You need rebirth. I'm here to provide it. And the Holy Spirit will apply it. And that's, that's what you need to see and hear and understand, Nicodemus. That's, that's what I've come to do. But verse 9 how can these things be, asked Nicodemus. How can this be? What? This is all too much. This is I, I've never heard this before. What? This is astounding. Let's not be too hard on our buddy Nick. I mean, this was a lot for him to process. Especially considering how completely radical and foreign that this was to everything he believed and everything that he had himself taught others so long about how God works and how it is and what you have to do. I mean, this was flying in the face of everything he knew. This was counter in every way to his entire identity. And at least he was honest with his struggles, right? I mean, he didn't say, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, I've got it. We're good. Thanks, Jesus. Good job. No, he said... I don't know what you're talking about here. How can all this be? Next week we'll hear how Jesus responds, which is more, you know, similar to how he did at this this first half here, to the point but also so loving, so full of grace and compassion and patience. You know, how Jesus deals with you and me. Aren't you glad he does? Aren't you glad he's patient, long suffering, loving? So we'll see how Jesus responds to that and the rest of what he says. But I just want to leave you with this very personal consideration. Have you been born again? It's as simple as that. Have you been born from above? which is what literally is meant by born again. It's it's really what Jesus was saying, born from above. Have you been born from above? Have you acknowledged and admitted that what you need to be right with God for all of eternity, starting now, that you can't do yourself? Have you acknowledged that you don't need a A minor renovation here and a minor renovation there. What you need is a total transformation. Have you ever acknowledged that in your life? And beyond acknowledging, have you ever taken that acknowledgement and that awareness and gone to the only one who can do anything about that, Jesus Christ? If so, great. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank Him for that today. But if you have been depending on anyone or anything other than what Jesus Christ alone can do, then today is the day where you needed to hear this so that you can wake up and receive what He has for you. And that's something I can't do, and nobody else can, something you can't do. It's something that, that God has done and has for you to receive. Let's pray. Father, I I pray if there is anyone that has not yet received the work of Jesus that the Holy Spirit applies, that today would be the day they do. Oh, Father, help us all to see it's not minor renovation, it's total transformation that we all need. For those of us that you have, by your Spirit's work, made aware of that and helped us to accept that, and you've given us the faith to receive what you've made available, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that supernatural work that we couldn't do ourselves. Thank you so much. Father, it's after receiving that transforming work of the Holy Spirit, after being reborn, that's when the renovations happen. But it's the transformation that has to happen first. And then the rest of our lives, thank you for your work of renovation by your Spirit. Help us to be submissive to that work. Help us to yield to that work. And just as with our salvation, we admit and acknowledge that our sanctification is beyond us too. So thank you for, from start to finish, doing what we never could, and what we could never deserve, but so desperately, desperately need. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.